Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for the second of two podcasts is Dr. Rafael Perez Escamilla, who is professor of epidemiology and director of the Office of Community Health at the Yale School of Public Health. He's also the director of the Connecticut NIH Export Center for Excellence for Eliminating Health Disparities Among Latinos. He's published widely and has taken part in very influential and important government committees, including an Institute of Medicine Committee on Pregnancy Weight Gain Guidelines, and also was a member of the Scientific Advisory Committee to help establish the 2010 U.S. Dietary Guidelines. Rafael, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me here, Kelly. So I'd like to talk about uh, disparities and rates of childhood obesity. Um, because there's great concern that the rates of childhood obesity are not distributed evenly among demographic groups in the population, and that this has important implications for understanding how obesity develops and what might be done about it. Could we start by you telling us a little bit about what those disparities are? Yeah. So we know that there are fairly large disparities in the rates of kids who are overweight or obese based on their race or ethnic background. So, for example, Latino and African-American children starting at a very young age, as early as two years of age, they are already at higher risk of being overweight or obese. So at that age, about one out of every 10 Caucasian children are overweight or obese versus one out of six uh, Latino African-American children. And this difference becomes larger and larger as the children grow. By the time they are teenagers, the chances that a teenager will be experiencing morbid obesity, a very high degree of obesity, is three times higher if they are Latino or African-American versus Caucasian. So there are very large disparities in the rates of childhood obesity, even though it is a problem that affects all ethnic racial groups. And then that, of course, turns into greater risk for things like diabetes. Absolutely. And it is not uncommon now for 8, 10-year-old kids in minority communities to have either overt type 2 diabetes or to be well, well advanced in the process of developing this really difficult condition. Now, this is an issue that's well known in the health professional circles about um, diabetes, type 2 diabetes occurring in younger and younger children. Um, But the general public may not know a lot about this. And um, could you explain a little bit about how that's occurred and what it might mean? Right. Well, we believe that part of the reason that minority children are both experiencing higher chances of being overweight, obese at a very early age, and also of developing prediabetes or diabetes not too long after that, is very much related to the fact that minority women are more likely to become or to be overweight or obese by the time they become pregnant and to put on excessive weight during pregnancy. This uh, process uh, may program the child itself 
to then become overweight, obese, and develop chronic diseases later on in life. So there seem to be very important interactions between the genes and the environment to which the embryo and then the fetus is exposed, and then what happens in terms of obesity risk after birth. And this risk gets compounded if the child is not breastfed, if the child is introduced to complementary or the so-called solid foods before the child is six months old, and then the likelihood that the child not only will become obese early on, but will continue, and if it's a girl, will be an obese adolescent also increases, and in turn, by the time this adolescent girl gets pregnant, if she is overweight and obese, then the cycle repeats all itself again. So what I think it's very important for the public to understand is that the obesity pandemic and the childhood obesity epidemic we're experiencing in the country is a problem that it may take a generation to solve because it gets transferred, that risk gets transferred from one generation to the next. So it is very, very important for us to address also the weight of the mom before she gets pregnant. Something that you mentioned in passing I'd like to expand on, and that's the role of breastfeeding. How does that figure in this picture? There is a fairly consistent evidence that babies who are breastfed, and especially if they are exclusively breastfed, uh, that they are less likely to become obese uh, later on later on in life. Uh, although the evidence is not 100% consistent, the great majority of studies, and when we summarize the effect from all the studies, it points in that direction. Now, we also feel comfortable making the statement that breastfeeding is likely to protect against childhood obesity because it has, it makes a lot of sense as well. A baby that is formula fed, the mother controls in many ways uh, the amount of formula that the baby is going to consume. Uh, most babies would love to overconsume uh, if they are allowed. In the case of breastfeeding, I conducted research in Honduras many years ago and published a paper in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition showing how the babies self-regulate the amount of breast milk they consume based on how much calories mama's milk has. So babies who were consuming a mother's milk with higher levels of calorie consumed less volume because they were adjusting the amount to the calories that they needed. We also know that during a breastfeeding episode, the composition of the breast milk changes. So the level of fat is different at the end than at the beginning of the breastfeeding episode in breast milk. And we believe that gives very important cues to the baby in terms of satiety, appetite control uh, mechanisms. We also know that the insulin profile is much healthier among breastfed and formula fed babies, and that is largely explained by the much higher level of protein content of formula. In this instant, it's not the carbohydrate, but it is the level of protein in formula that explains that. And we now know also that breastfed babies have healthier leptin profiles, and leptin is a, a compound found in blood that indicates us the level of fat that individuals are depositing. So from many different angles and levels of evidence, 
it seems that it is prudent from a childhood obesity prevention perspective for all moms to consider breastfeeding their babies. The piece of research that you did in Honduras is fascinating, that babies will adjust their intake depending on the calorie or fat content of the mother's particular breast milk. Why then wouldn't babies do that with formula? How does the formula not get sensed by the body in the way breast milk does so that the child doesn't regulate that? So, so one of the hypotheses is that the composition of the formula milk doesn't change during the breastfeeding episode, mm. and that the composition of the human milk changes during the breastfeeding episode, and that those changes are promoting an adequate appetite control in the child. So we don't know the final answer to your great question, but we believe there are very profound differences in the way the baby senses the uh, messages, if we can call them like that, that the mom is transferring through the milk to them. So I know there's been a lot of concern in the U.S., but also in a lot of other countries, about the messages women get about breastfeeding versus using formula. Um, what does that picture look like, and, and what do you think it should look like? Well, you know, we have, for example, a wonderful maternal child public health nutrition program in the U.S. that's called the Special Nutrition Supplemental Program for Women, Infants, and Children, what we affectionately call WIC, the WIC program. So on the one hand, the WIC nutritionists, the WIC caseworkers, everybody in a WIC clinic that serves low-income women and their children, especially pregnant lactating women and their children under five, they're extremely supportive of breastfeeding. Their messages are totally pro-breastfeeding. The WIC program is investing $80 million per year promoting breastfeeding through peer counseling in the country. But in the, on the other hand, we have a situation where the WIC program is the largest distributor of free infant formula in the world. I published a meta-analysis in the American Journal of Public Health in 1994 uh, showing how providing women with free formula just once at hospital discharge uh, shortens substantially the duration of, of breastfeeding. So the WIC program it needs to address the issue of the distribution of infant formula because it is a very contradictory message. What the WIC program has done is to revise the benefits, update the benefits that they give to moms in terms of food vouchers and, and so on, so that hopefully now they will be more motivated to choose to breastfeed the child versus formula feed. So if they choose to breastfeed exclusively the child, then they are getting more food more healthy food, more fruits and vegetables, more protein sources and so on than they did than they did before. Also, if the mother expresses a wish to breastfeed, the weak staff is doing everything they can to prevent the mother from getting formula at least the first month after delivery, which is a very, very sensitive time. Once the formula is introduced, the risk that the baby will be weaned from the breast soon thereafter increases dramatically. Well, I know that some nutrition professionals have been quite concerned about the aggressive marketing by the infant formula companies uh, by giving away free samples, having a strong presence in hospitals and things like that. Do you think that's a, um, a, a pressure that women should be protected from? Absolutely. You know, it is, it is a public health problem. And we all know those of us, you know, who have relatives or colleagues who have recently had babies, 
We know that their names get sold if they had, for example, a baby shower or after the baby's born, if people were purchasing gifts for the baby and so on. And they write down the name of the person. Sometimes the, the stores have the address. They sell those to the formula companies. And before we know it, even uh, research associates of mine that do their living by doing breastfeeding research, they get uh, offers of vouchers for free samples of, of formula, free baby food, and so on uh, through, through, through the mailings. Uh, also, we know there is a huge global initiative called the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative so that maternity wards can promote breastfeeding all over the world following 10 very simple steps. One of the steps is to not accept free uh, infant formula from, from the food industry or even at a reduced cost because the U.S. Uh, chose is one of the few countries that chose not to adhere to the World Health Organization code for the ethical marketing of infant formula and other breast milk substitutes, there is no control, there is no pressure by the hospitals to adhere to that recommendation. And that has made very difficult the implementation of the baby-friendly hospital initiative in the country. And as a result, we are losing a lot in terms of maternal child uh, public health outcomes that could be much better if babies are breastfed Breast milk also offers major benefits to moms in terms of a reduction of breast uh, cancer uh, risk and perhaps other chronic diseases as well. And it is a very healthy behavior, not only for the child, but also for the mom. So to loop back to the uh, question we started with, that is disparities in rates of obesity, are there things in addition to promoting breastfeeding that you would recommend in terms of the nation addressing the high rates of childhood obesity in general, yeah. but particularly the disparities issue? So these are things that we're not doing very well right now. I'm going to focus on those. The first one is preconceptional nutrition. It is crucial. It is very key that we do everything we can to help everyone, but especially women, to don't be overweight obese by the time they get pregnant for the first time. Secondly, it is very, very important that OBGYNs and healthcare providers that have contact with moms during pregnancy, that they help them monitor their weight gain and try to do everything they can to make sure that through healthy lifestyle choices, nutrition, physical activity, stress reduction, and so on, that they can then stay within the IOM 2009 recommended weight gain during pregnancy guidelines. And we know that those guidelines depend on the pre-pregnancy body mass index of, of moms. So it is a little bit complicated because you cannot just come up with a number. It depends how much weight a mom has when, when she becomes pregnant. But nutrition during gestation has a very powerful influence on what is going to happen to the obesity risk of the fetus later on, later on in life. And thirdly, you know, in terms of uh, infant nutrition, let's remember that it's not only breastfeeding. We're also dealing with the introduction of complementary or solid foods. It is very important that they don't get introduced before the recommended age of six months. It is very important that these are healthy patterns that include uh, fresh fruits, vegetables, adequate uh, protein sources, 
and so on, and to avoid as much as possible giving processed foods to the kids. We know that processed foods in general have a lot of the foods that the dietary guidelines or the ingredients that the dietary guidelines want us to consume less. Simple sugars or starches, solid fats, and a lot of sodium. Well, this has been incredibly informational and instructive, and you've made this very important point that not only does preventing obesity and stemming the, the high rates of prevalence start early in life, but very early in life, even before a woman becomes pregnant. And it's not something that's considered a lot in the national circles when you talk about preventing obesity, but it sounds like it should be given the, the relevant data. I think it should, and and we do have a committee reports, guidelines that in one way or another address each of the stages of the life cycle that I just mentioned. What we now need is the big integration exercise. Someone has to integrate uh, these guidelines. And in my view, given the visibility, given the influence that they have, I think the 2015 Dietary Guidelines Scientific Advisory Committee should take should take this on. And in, in parallel, the federal social food assistance programs and so on should be doing the same because for these guidelines to be implementable, the services, the programs available to women also need to coordinate better with each other the types of foods, the types of services, and the referral systems that currently are not in place. Great. Well, that strikes me as a major advance. Well, thank you so much for sharing this information with us. Thank you. My pleasure, Kelly. Our guest was Dr. Rafael Perez Escamilla, Professor of Epidemiology and Director of the Office of Community Health at the Yale University School of Public Health. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org. There you'll find a variety of resources on all sorts of issues related to food policy, an email newsletter that goes out with breaking news in the food policy arena, at no cost, of course, and, um, of course, a list of the other podcasts that we've recorded with excellent guests who have visited the Rudd Center. Thank you.